Good to see you all tonight. Um, we have been announcing what's going on this evening for quite some time. Uh, what's going on is I'm going to ask them questions tonight and then just disagree with them the whole time. And we're going to see how well they can defend themselves. Um, actually, not really. I did give them a list of questions to study. They've been studying them for, I don't know, a couple months now. And uh, what they don't know is I actually have different questions for them tonight. Uh, and so we'll see how well they handle them. Uh, you guys did submit some great, great questions over the last couple of weeks. Um, in fact, enough for us to just start dividing them up. We'll probably have to take four or five Sunday nights to try to address them all. Uh, tonight we hope to get to five of them, um, and, and we'll see how that goes. The plan is uh, we'll, we'll probably go until 7.15 or so, and then we will uh, take a short break before our members meeting tonight. Uh, but hopefully it'll be just a casual, discussion-oriented question and answer. You'll see a little bit of how we, um, I don't know, function together, blunder. blunder together about some of the things. Um, man, it's a bad idea to give the four of us microphones that are on. Um, anyways, <laughs> you'll see how we interact over Bible issues um, and, and maybe see how we disagree a little bit, but... Uh, also arrive to good, solid conclusions. That's the hope. So um, will you pray for us, Larry? And then I'll start asking you all some questions. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your unending love and the pleasure of uh, having you in our lives. Thank you for the blessing of, uh, of being yours. Uh, what a great joy it is, Lord, to know that you are in control of all things and you're sovereign and you love us. So Lord, give us guidance and direction. Help our, uh, help our responses in every aspect of our life always, always agree with Scripture. And may we use it as our back uh, and not on our own intelligence. So give us uh, guidance and direction. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, the degree of difficulty um, will be shown in this first question that I have. Um, it comes from a very wise individual who wants to know why there are so many hot dog buns in a package and then so many hot dogs in another package. Those were the types of questions we got. Um, so we're, we actually had to make up our own. No, not, not really. The first one is a Bible-oriented question. It's a textual question, uh, interpretive question. Uh, and these guys have come up with some really good answers. It's out of Proverbs chapter 9, verse 1. In that verse, it says, Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn out her seven pillars. The question is, do you know what the seven pillars refer to? Douglas? <laughs> okay, I... <clears throat> I have to, before we even get to that, the last time I ever did something like this, for a couple of years I got to preach um, a college service in Oklahoma City, and it was a joint, several churches and BCMs came together, and at the end of every semester we'd let the college kids turn in questions like this, and we would get them in advance, and I would, I'd put the hard ones at the very bottom of the stack, knowing we would run out of time before we got to them, and, and they accused me of doing that, and I was like, well, of course we do that. I mean, I'm not going to lie to you, there's some of them we'll never get to, and we would never do that to you guys. You guys wrote such great questions. If you have Proverbs 9, I want to just show you the beauty of this proverb real quick and then try to answer it. Proverbs 9 actually um, 
personifies wisdom and folly. And it presents it as two women. Wisdom has built her house in verse 1. And she asks in verse 4, whoever is simple, let him turn in here. So it's a picture of a woman who represents wisdom, saying, if you'd like wisdom, come into my house. I would love to give you wisdom. Verse 13, the woman of folly is loud and seductive and knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house, takes a seat on the high places, calling to those who pass by. And notice verse 14 is almost identical. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. So Proverbs chapter 9 is um, a contrast between wisdom inviting people into her house and foolishness inviting people into her house. And the proverb actually shows what you would get if you go into each house. It tells you the end. You can live a life of wisdom following her or live a life of foolishness following her. And God, in a beautiful way, in Proverbs 9 presents the two um, and personifies both. I mean, it's, it's one of my favorite proverbs. I'll give you my answer. I don't think the seven pillars represents seven specific things. I don't think you can say pillar number one is this and pillar number two is that. I think Proverbs 9 is just saying wisdom has built a large house. It's a fully furnished house. To have seven pillars holding up the roof would be a big house. Um, I think when you go into Proverbs like this, if you want to come up with something for every single detail, then, I mean, finish reading that out. She has slaughtered her beast. You have to decide what beast did she kill. Um, obviously, she's providing a big meal to provide for those who want wisdom, and there's more than one meat offered. She's killed multiple animals, so you have to start thinking, what are the animals? Are they cows and bulls and goats? Or, and it says she's mixed her wine. What'd she mix it with? Um, she set her table... She sent her young women to call out from the highest places. You have to say, what are the highest places? What do they represent? I, I think you're missing the point of the proverb if you have to find something for every single detail. God is saying, in, in my opinion, in Proverbs 9, wisdom has built a great house and it's fully furnished, and if you come in to God's wisdom, the table's set for you. It'll, it'll give you what you need for life. And then the proverb goes on to tell you the result of following her. And the end of the chapter talks about foolishness has built a great house as well. And here's what you'll get if you follow foolishness. But I don't think every detail you have to trace down. Uh, I think it's just saying she's built a, a great big house and it's fully furnished and, and it'll provide for you. So I don't know that it's seven specific things. That's my take on it. Thanks, Doug. Oh, he asked me first. <clears throat> well, but I could be wrong. That sounded good. I, li I liked your answer very much. I did uh, come with a different. I just started looking in the previous eight chapters and try to figure out is wisdom here referred to throughout Proverbs? And I kind of felt it was. Uh, so I started looking, and in Proverbs 1, I... Uh, I felt like uh, integrity was a very strong, if I had to find a name for a pillar, I would name the first one integrity. And I got that from verse 18 of chapter 1. Uh, it says, uh, these men lie in wait for their own, own blood. They set an ambush for their own lives. Uh, such are the ways of everyone who is greedy for unjust, unjust gain. 
So to me, that lent to integrity. Some of the uh, words that I came up with were actually spelled out in the in the proverb in Proverbs 1 20 through 33 it speaks of knowledge so I thought knowledge might be the next pillar and uh, the key verse being verse 20 they are those who hate wisdom will not find me because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord so I thought knowledge would be a good pillar uh, the third one was in Proverbs 2, 1 through 15, and understanding would be a great pillar for wisdom. And all these qualities describe wisdom. Uh, did I do three yet? Three? Uh, this is my answer. Uh, the third one was understanding Proverbs between Proverbs 2, 1 and verses 15. Uh, verse 2 says, incline your heart to understanding. Uh, the fourth one would be in Proverbs 3, 1 through 12, would be trust. Uh, trust in the Lord with all your heart, verse 5 and 6, and he will make your path straight. Uh, five, I had to reach for five, would be rest and peace, which would be Proverbs 3, 13 through 26. Verse 17, her ways are ways of pleasantness, and her paths, all her paths are peace. Blessed is the one who finds wisdom. Uh, six, I'm just trying to skim through them because there's like eight verse, eight chapters before we get to nine. Uh, six would be purity, and that would be in Proverbs 5, 1 through 23, and Proverbs 6, 20 through 35. Uh, keep discretion for her lips of a forbidden woman drip honey. Keep your way far from her. So purity is a very important part of wisdom. The final one I thought would be diligence in uh, Proverbs 8, 1 through, 36, 1 through 36. And verse 17 would be a key verse saying, those who seek me dil diligently find me. So those are the seven pillars I came up with. Some of them I had to stretch for. Brian, do you have anything to add? I don't think, is this on? Yes. Okay. I can't tell for some reason. I don't think that it's referring to seven specific things either. Um, what I did was I did kind of a, a comprehensive look throughout the rest of the Bible at um, when the number seven shows up. And I think that what basically what it's saying is wisdom has built a house and she's put pillars there and pillars lend strength to a structure and it's complete strength um, I think a lot of times in especially the Old Testament seven is used as a number of completeness and um, so I wanted to give a couple of verses that I think illustrate that pretty well in Ruth chapter 4 Ruth is talking or I'm sorry Naomi is talking to Ruth and if you remember Naomi has just lost her two boys and her husband. And she makes this statement to Ruth in verse 15. And she says, you are more to me than seven sons. She had never had seven sons. The chances of her having sons are gone with her husband. But she was saying, I think that you, Ruth, fulfill my need in children completely. Even seven sons couldn't take the place of me. 
We kind of see something similar also in 1 Samuel chapter 2 when Hannah has received Samuel as a gift from God and she's thanking God and she's singing her song of praise to God. And um, she says that the barren has um, seven. The barren has seven children. And Naomi didn't, or I'm sorry, not Naomi. Hannah didn't have seven children at the time. She was just saying, Samuel, as a gift from God, has so fulfilled my need for children. I, I'm complete. I, and she went on to have more sons and daughters. But So that's another good one. Um, some other ones that I don't think aren't, are quite as good. Um, in Leviticus, the veil and the altar were sprinkled seven times with blood to consecrate them. Uh, in Genesis chapter 33, when Jacob is returning from being with Laban, um, and he comes up to Esau. Remember, Esau had like 400 guys, and Jacob was terrified. And he bowed down to the ground to Esau seven times, I think showing that he was completely repentant. He knew that he had robbed him of his inheritance and had treated him poorly as a brother. And so I think that it's just a, it's a good way of showing how strong the house is that wisdom can build. It's completely strong. I think if you are trying to, I don't know who wrote this question, if you are trying to look at some characteristics <coughs> of wisdom, um, I think that a great place to go is James chapter 3, when it says the wisdom from above is, and then it lists a bunch of things, pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason. So we do have great descriptions of specific things that, that wisdom does. Um, I just think that this is saying that wisdom builds a completely strong, sound house. Wisdom provides what's needed. And seven is a number of completion in the Bible. I mean, seven days to create, and on the seventh day he rested. You do see that theme often in the Bible of, of seven. <clears throat> I, and I would just add, taking the chapter as a whole, I want to make sure not to get just totally hung up there. If, if you see the difference between the two houses, the end, I want to make sure we see this. In verse 11, if you choose that house, the one built on that wisdom is inviting you to come into, it says, for by me, your days will be multiplied and years will be added to your life. It's a promise of blessing. But at the end, um, verse 18, but he who um, does not know the dead are there and her guests are in the depths of Sheol. It's a picture of going into Folly's house takes you to death and going into wisdom's house takes you to life. The, the proverb doesn't ultimately hinge on what the seven pillars are. It hinges on the promise of a wise life versus a foolish life. So either way, we've got to make sure we see that. You've used two tokens for this question. So, no, I, I think that's, I think you're, you're right there. The, the point is um, the proverb is trying to get you to choose wisdom. That's what's valuable. Uh, so getting hung up on numbers... Um, can be a detriment um, yeah I'll leave it at that so question number two um, I didn't tell you guys who asked what questions and I'm not going to share that tonight except for this question uh, because this is a a very good question um, it shows great progress and tracking through biblical issues it's genuine, um, and the one who asked it has been hounding me every week when, when we're going to answer it. Um, and it comes from Riley, 
who's been tracking along in Sunday school and church and different things, and she asks this tremendous, tremendous question about the existence of God. Um, We could probably, in my opinion, spend the rest of the time here discussing all the implications of this question, Um, but I'll ask it, and then you guys take a shot at it. Her question is kind of lengthy, so let me finish. It says, how were Mary and the other people made before Jesus was born? Everyone says it's because of Adam and Eve, but Jesus and God had to be born before Mary and all the other people. So how were Mary and the other people made before Jesus was born? That question reveals some incredible truths about Jesus, about where people come from, and it's a question that deals with existence. So, um, Brian, you want to start with this one? Riley, it is, is this one any better? Is that it? It is? Okay. All right. Um, It is hard to wrap your mind around, isn't it? Because Jesus was born, but did Jesus exist before Christmas morning? Yes. Yes, he did. He did exist before Christmas morning. Because Jesus is God, he has always existed. So if you go all the way back to Genesis, Jesus was there. Um, you actually see God um, talking to Jesus and the Holy Spirit. The three of them are talking in Genesis. Um, remember, God says, let's make men in whose image? Our image. Talking about all three people that are inside the Trinity. So Jesus was alive back then. He's always been alive because he's God. And so he was involved with creation and making everything. The New Testament talks about that in places. And I would say that the difficulty in it is because for us, when we're born, that's when we start living, right? But for Jesus, it wasn't that he started to exist and he started to live when he was born. It was just that that was the first time he was in a human body. And so... The difficulty is in realizing that Jesus didn't begin on Christmas morning. He has always been around. And it is hard to, um, it's hard when you think about Jesus being God in a little tiny baby's body. But he has always existed. Does that make sense, Riley? Okay. It was just the first time that God put Jesus in a human's body. I'm pretty good with that. <laughs> Doug used all his tokens, so it's your your turn, Larry. Uh, I, I tend to exactly agree with what Brian said. Jesus has always been here. He is the eternal God. I found a verse in uh, Deuteron- Deuteronomy when uh, Deuteronomy 33:24 through 27, the tribe of Asher, Asher received a blessing from Moses. And in verse 27, it says, The eternal God is your dwelling place, and underneath are the everlasting arms. Which indicates to me that God has always been here, and God will always be, be here. He's not bound by the 
timeline that we see our lives following. He's, he was here before time, and he will live eternally. And Jesus was right there with him the whole time. To me, it's just a great picture of God's love for us, that he would send his son, who was here before the world was created, and the world was created by him, to earth, so that he might become our sacrifice. It's just a beautiful picture. And uh, the difference between Jesus being born and other people is that other people have an earthly father. Jesus' father is God. I will stop. Yeah. I, and I think, Riley, if you, if you can get this figured out, that Jesus didn't come into existence in Bethlehem with Mary and Joseph, that he was existed before then, you'll actually be ahead of a lot of people. I've been surprised how many people actually believe that over the years that I've run into. I remember years ago, one of our best students in our youth ministry was president of FCA and solid Christian young man. And he got up and was speaking one time around Christmas at FCA, and I was there, and, and he taught that Jesus came into existence at Bethlehem. And I swung by his house afterwards to talk to him about it, and I was like, who's your youth minister? I mean, how can you believe that? That's, and so I was talking to his dad, and his dad's like, I assure you he doesn't believe that. He's got that straightened out. So he came down from his room, and I said, hey, it seemed like you taught tonight at FCA that Jesus did not exist before Bethlehem. And, and his dad was like, yeah, Doug misunderstood you. And the boy was like, no, that's what I believe. I was like, well, you're wrong. I mean, his dad was like, you really do believe that. And somehow he had just bought into the fact that there was God and there was no Jesus until Bethlehem and the wise men and the shepherds. And, and I think Brian and Larry are exactly right. He's eternal. So Adam and Eve, in your question, that is correct. They were the first men, first man and woman. But God had existed forever before them and chose to create them and then chose to send his son into the world to take, to take on flesh and become one of us. Um, and, and the reason he did that, I, um, it's interesting when you look through the, the covenants in particular in the, in the Bible, but God always kept his side of the covenant, Abraham, Noah, and men always failed to keep their side of the covenant. And it's almost as if God said, you know what, I'm going to have to become a man and move over here so I can keep both sides of the covenant for you people. So God always kept his side. Then he became a man, moved over, and kept our side for us. Um, and that, that's why he had to come. Yeah, in all, all fairness, too, the, the difficulty of this question and the subject matter only increases from, from this point. If you think about God in heaven and then coming down to be born... Um, fleshing out the incarnation's tough, and and so um, I love Riley's question because she's wrestling with the fact that God took on flesh, and and how do two natures dwell into one person and not be contradictory and and not you know be dominant and and Christ maintain deity and yet humanity and then how did Christ exist before? He was born, and what happens when he leaves heaven and 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 submits to earthly governing principles? I mean, the the difficulty just progresses from this point. Of w once you figure out, you know, and I don't want to confuse Riley or anybody, but once you figure out that Jesus was already in heaven, and then came via a virgin birth, there's lots of other questions that come off of this. I I wrote a paper on the preexistence of. Christ before his incarnation and how, how did Jesus and in what form did Christ exist before he was born um, 
because we, we typically talk in language of Christ taking on flesh at that moment. Uh, the Bible uses that language. But things like John seventeen five, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Before creation, before he took on flesh, how did Christ exist? What was his existence like? Um, I have a lot more questions. And I think we have to take by faith what the Bible says. It's hard to get your mind totally wrapped around concepts like the Trinity or Christ coming and being 100% God and 100% man. How does that work? We just read it in the Bible and we, we take it by faith. I, I do think it's fair to say that throughout church history, most of the heresies, not all of them, but many of the heresies that have cropped up throughout church history have centered on a wrong identity of Christ. You get the identity of Christ wrong and it messes you up everywhere else. Right. Was, wasn't it um, Arianism, Silas, that um, a, whole, a whole debate around Christ and, and the early parts of church history, they um, believed that Christ became God at his, at his baptism and then um, let, let his deity go before his crucifixion because you also have other questions like how can God humble himself to that point and how can God allow himself to be crucified um, this is this is a this is a eternal question getting Christ right it's a great question from a young yeah. lady uh, and I think we're impressed with your question I think Ryan. Riley's tracking completely well um, don't neglect these kinds of questions about the incarnation of Christ because our Christian faith is founded on them understanding who Jesus is correctly from the scriptures and asking those kind of questions good job all right, numero tres. If the wages of sin are death, spiritual, and Christ took our punishment and paid our ransom on the cross, then did he die a spiritual death as well as a physical death? I need some clarification a little bit. Are we going to say spiritual is not referring to divinity? Is spiritual referring to spirit and soul? The way I took the question was that the person was asking, um, because our faults are spiritual faults and our debts are spiritual debts to God, was Christ's death just physical? Or did there also have to be a spiritual element of the death um, in order for the debt to be erased? Is that how you guys took it? Yeah, I, I think so. But I, um, <laughs> how'd you take it? Well, I, I take, I took it as there's two kinds of death. There's a physical death, which is what we all will experience, what Jesus experienced, and there's a spiritual death, that which we as believers will not experience. That would be. The judgment lake of fire. That is the lake of fire is the second death. So I can I consider this question, and I also consider this verse particularly, where it says the wages of sin is death, referring to the lake of fire experience. Because that ties in with all of the other mentioning of death, like uh, John three sixteen perish you know god so loved the world gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him will not perish 
which I consider to be the lake of fire experience. Well, I think you're taking it like that. Oh, did I? Well, are, we, are we in agreement then? Well, I don't know that your answer is in agreement, but I think you're taking the question the same way. Okay. Let me, let me <laughs> add this just for a framework to talk about it. And, and when I read through the Bible, I don't, I don't think the Bible sometimes doesn't divide it like we do. When God told Adam, in the day you eat of the fruit, in that day you'll die, that's all, that's all we have recorded. And we want to ask what kind of death, because he ate of it and did not die physically that day. Um, so theologians tend to talk in three terms of death. Physical death, which is when your spirit or your soul separates from your body. When we have a funeral, we know the body's still here, but the person, the soul or the spirit's not. So physical death is when there's that separation occurs between your soul and your body. Then they also talk, secondly, about spiritual death, which they tend to mean by that separation from God. Um, there's a distance between God and I. I'm spiritually dead. I'm not what he wants me to be spiritually. And in the day that Adam ate, he did die spiritually in that sense. He, he was separated from God. The fellowship wasn't what it was at one time. And then the third one, which may be what Larry's kind of referring to, is eternal death. So physical death, spiritual death, and then eternal death, which is you're separated from God and there's no chance to come back and it's forever and ever and ever. So sometimes we read death in the Bible, and in our minds, we, we may not categorize it exactly like that, but that's the terms we're thinking in, and God seems to use just a general term, in the day you eat of it, you'll die. Did you mean physical, or did you mean spiritual, or did you mean eternal? And God's just like, you'll die, and that's, that's all we have. And so when I read the question, I took it to mean that middle one, spiritual death. Part of our punishment for our sin is we will die physically one day, and because of our sin, the punishment was we were separated from God. There was a spiritual death. And if we don't come to Christ, we'll experience the eternal death. Did Christ, in pain for my punishment, he died physically. Was there a part of his soul or spirit that experienced separation from God the Father? This, that's the way I took it, to mean that kind of spiritual death. Not necessarily in a permanent sense, but when he paid my debt, did he also pay the spiritual death side of it for me so I wouldn't have to. That's the way I took the question. I have a lot of questions. Would it have uh, been permanent if it were not for the resurrection? I mean, is, is that what makes it not eternal separation? Because that's part of the victory and declaration of the resurrection. Then I also wonder, would Adam and Eve, how would they have interpreted the, the term death? Because it hadn't been given as a curse yet in the sense of physical death. So would they have, you know, how, how would they have understood what God was referencing there if God hadn't been referencing a soul death, spiritual death of the heart? Yeah, I, I think he, he may have explained that nothing had died yet. And yeah. so when he said, in the day you eat of it, you'll die, they, they had no concept. I mean, no animal had died yet. They hadn't, death hadn't entered because sin hadn't entered. So he may have explained it more fully to them. That's just all we have, is that he said death. But I, um, I, I think they could have died physically that very day, but I think instantly grace kicked in. Instantly God began working with us in grace, or they could have died physically that day, but the process started that eventually would end in physical death for them. And spiritual death was started that day, and God began trying to restore that as well. But at So at the cross, did Christ spiritually die 
you know, I really wish, I, I can't say that. I know God gave us all the information that we need to know about what Christ actually experienced on the cross. Trying to figure that out and looking for details, there's just not a whole lot of them in the Bible about what he experienced spiritually, you know. And um, most of what we have is just that God turned his, his face away from Christ and Christ was crying out, where are you? Why have you forsaken me? Um, I do think, though, that since our debt was a spiritual death, Christ had to pay that spiritual debt, and a spiritual debt can only be paid by a spiritual payment. And so Christ, um, and this is where it gets so incredible, and it shows you the power and the divinity of Christ, And is when you think, because I, I looked in Revelation, which is what Larry was referring to, and um, in Revelation chapter 21, it talks about the second death, which is, which is hell, and it talks about it in Revelation chapter 20 that those who have experienced the first resurrection um, will, never, will never have to experience that death, the death in hell. And Christ, in John chapter 8, um, verse 51, he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. And he's obviously not talking about physical death because everyone he talked to that day died. He was talking about a spiritual death, or a second death. They, had, they were going to experience physical death. They had already experienced spiritual death because they were all sinners. They never were going to experience the second death if they believed in him. And so I do think that in some way Christ experienced my eternity in hell, my second death on the cross in just a few hours. And not just mine, but all of us, millions of Christians an eternity of God's wrath cram-packed into six hours and laid on Christ. And so, in a real sense, when we look at our debt and um, our debt being paid by a second death, Christ had to experience that second death on the cross. And I don't, I don't know exactly what that looked like exactly, but he took all of God's wrath, which Brian couldn't pay off in an eternity, and he took it in a short period of time. So I, I do think that when we look at the characteristics of our debt to God, it is a death penalty debt. And that death penalty is carried out ultimately in, in hell for all of eternity. And so knowing exactly what that looks like is really hard. Yeah, and, and it leaves us with some more Trinitarian questions about what it means for Christ to be separated from God. But, but I think that's the whole anguish Christ is going through at the crucifixion. I I don't think any of it is physical. Uh, I mean, the physical pain he experienced, he went through, he understood, he endured. <clears throat> but in Matthew twenty six thirty eight, when he tells the disciples to pray, and and he's going to go off to pray right before his arrest, and he says, "My soul is exceedingly sorrowful." I don't think that's because of the physical ailments he's going to face. It's entirely spiritual for Christ. He knows far better than we do. Uh, the wrath that is that sin deserves, that's coming for sin, that he's about to drink and endure. And um, it, it was all spiritual, and I carry that off over into, like you're saying, e even the death. Um, paying the penalty meant being treated as a sinner. I, I think a little bit of that is reflected in his cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, I actually don't believe he wondered why God had forsaken him. I think the reason is put in the form of a question is because he's quoting Psalm 22, 1. 
which is in the form of a question. Christ knew why he felt separation from God. He's just quoting, and actually several of his seven statements on the cross come out of Psalms. Even on his worst day, he's quoting scripture. It's, it's an amazing thing to me. But he quotes it from Psalm 22, 1 to, to, to just quote a verse from the Old Testament that summarized what he was feeling. But I, I think that comment reflects that he felt separation from God. He wasn't, um, he wasn't confused about it. He wasn't like, I feel separation, but there isn't any. There was separation. And so if spiritual death is being separated from God, he experienced it in a unique way that it's hard for us to explain with the Trinity because um, there's perfect unity between God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. Yet at that moment when he took on our sin and, and as the question said, paid our ransom to buy us back, he did experience physical death for us. He did experience all of God's wrath. And to some degree, he experienced what it felt, as, as 2 Corinthians says, he became sin and he felt that separation from God for the first time in all of eternity. And I think that summarizes something of, by spiritual death, we don't mean his spirit died in the sense that it no longer existed. Nobody's spirit ever dies. You will live forever somewhere. We're, we're all eternal that, going that direction, going forward. <clears throat> so his spirit didn't go out of existence. It just felt spiritual death in the sense that it was separated from the source of life. Yeah, and that, is, that's an important distinction, not out of existence. Right. God did not cease to exist. But I also think that helps us understand uh, how to celebrate the resurrection. We don't just celebrate that he physically rose from the, rose from the dead. We're, we're celebrating that all the spiritual things that are going on there and are atoning for sin have been taken care of. He's, he's completely resolved all that's necessary for salvation. What do you think? What do you think? What I think, I, I, it sounds good. I, I uh, really haven't looked at the uh, spiritual death in that light, and uh, and yeah, I can I can see how that separation from God would be a call to death, as in demonstrated in Adam. And uh, I, I'm kind of an evangelist at heart, and I like to view that. Lake of Fire as the promise that is given if a person doesn't repent and turn to Christ. Uh, so when John 3.16 says, you will not perish, it's talking about being cast into the lake of fire because your name's not written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And uh, then John 3.17 talks about being saved. Well, saved from what? saved from being cast into the lake of fire. So I think any time we uh, see saved, not every time we see death, thank you, but sometimes when you see death, it's talking about death in the lake of fire. And uh, it should spur us on to, to tell our friends and relatives because the consequence is grave for those who don't know Christ as their Savior. That's what I think. Very good. If they're not satisfied with this answer, this question is going to show up in the box for next month. <laughs> it's going to be there yeah. again. But I think That's Brian's true. point's good. This isn't one of those we're just dogmatic about because we can go take you to a chapter and verse that says he died physically. He dies. We're just trying to piece it together based on what we know and what he said on the cross. And 
um, but it's it's not one it's not one of those first tier issues that we're going to get mad about if you are like I'm not sure that's I, I was curious what other people have believed about this I actually um, kind of researched I mean Billy Graham had an article on this very question uh, it was very interesting and 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 he he believes Christ had to die spiritually in the sense of feeling that separation from God all the way back to John Calvin and his institutes he claims he had to if not he would just be redeeming us physically and not redeeming us spiritually so whoever asked this question Christians have been grappling with this question for a long time it's a it's a great question and I am landing on the spiritual death for now I mean my understanding I, I think it's in, incredibly important that Christ uh, sensed that separation and and was willing to do so and pay that kind of a penalty so um, I said we were going to end at 7.15. It is 7.15. We didn't get through all five questions. Surprise, surprise. Um, but let's do a speed round real quick of questions I'm going to make up for the next five minutes. Um, one word answers. As a pastor here at Trinity Baptist Church, uh, let's just kind of take the time to share our hearts a little bit. Um, Brian, we'll start with you and then just work this way down. Uh, you can have the in-seat now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, one word as best as possible, and you can take a second to think about it. Um, most encouraging thing that you can think of pertaining to our church. It's a very broad question. I, I don't know how to put this in a single word, but... <clears throat> It's You've already used more than one. I know. Um, Roxy and I have talked about this. We've never been at a church where it seems like there's such an interest in, in knowing and following what the Bible says. Um, I know that every church has people who come in and uh, they just sit down and attend and then they get up and leave, but that doesn't seem to be the heart of so many people at Trinity. And it's great to come to church and to feel that, that type of fellowship. Um, fellowship of spiritual fellowship really I mean um, fellowship of wanting to know what the Bible says wanting to be obedient to the Bible wanting to grow in knowledge and, and love of the Bible um, Trinity seems to be a, a really small church and when you compare it to other churches it's a small church with a lot of mature Christians um, and it it's really encouraging um, I, I would say that, that that's one of the biggest things to me, one of the most encouraging things to me is uh, I feel like overall the desire to grow is percentage-wise a lot higher than even a lot of bigger churches. So um, that's awesome. So much for the speed round. <laughs> <laughs> There's not a one-word answer Our for that. Our five minutes yeah, are up. I agree. <laughs> You're going to give, no, give your I answer. Mean, I mean, all the questions have gone this way. I, as a pastor, I mean, we we want to send some back to you. So I mean, go ahead. We'll, we'll start on either end, and Larry and I'll bring. Hey, up if the you end. can't think of something, just tell the people. No, I can. One word, Wendy. Wendy's oh, the most encouraging yeah. thing to me here. So right. uh, um, next, Larry. <laughs> I do have a one-word answer, and that is lordship. I think that encapsulates everything. That all the things that qualities that I believe this church has in a striving for lordship. If Jesus is Lord, then we love each other. If Jesus is Lord, then we follow his word. If Jesus is Lord, he's Lord. 
Lordship. That's good. And that was, I, I, didn't, I couldn't come <laughs> up with a word for that. Yes. I was going to say, I think this group of people, if they can figure out what the Bible says, they fully intend to do it. It may take us a little while to get it sorted out, but I get that sense in different Sunday school classrooms I've been in. So maybe it's the Lordship, maybe it's the word obedience. We're trying to figure out what it is, but there hasn't been any question in my heart that Trinity intends to do it once we get it figured out. And that's encouraging. Yeah, for me, it's grace. Um, it's been a long theme for me in relationship to this church. Um, I like to tell people who are asking about us, we're people who know grace and want to show grace. Um, because I have the privilege of knowing so many of your testimonies and your backgrounds and um, where you've come and where God has brought you. And I think it's a resounding theme among us that God has been gracious and God has shown mercy and God has been faithful uh, and I think that comes through in our warmth and our expression of lordship and our desire to know and follow the Bible. We're devoted to God because he's been devoted to us. And so for me, it's, it's been grace. Um, okay, seriously, one word. <laughs> what do you think could be, and we won't start with you, Brian. I'll just open it up. What do you think could be the most pressing danger facing our church? Lordship. <laughs> if Jesus is not Lord, we're in trouble. I don't know that I can improve on that. That's, that's, you got anything? Not yet. <laughs> I'm thinking. Um, and, and this slips in subtly, but but maybe um, a sense of apathy at times. I was just about to say we, that. We get to coasting just a little bit, and right. things are, whether it's apathy in our prayer life or apathy in evangelism, evangelism. or apathy, or, and, and um, we think this, this, is, this is good, and this is a, one of the best churches I've been a part of, and, and that can slip in. So, I mean, that could be a possible danger. Now we know why Brian didn't give one-word answers. <laughs> Neither does his dad. I gave a word and explained it. Larry gave a word and explained it. And he didn't get reprimanded. So He's a lot older. Okay. A lot older. Got anything down there? I'm not sure I can choose a one-word answer on this one. So you're just going to opt out? That's right. Abstain? Um, <clears throat> I, uh, I was thinking apathy. Um but I would also say, and I, I say this because I see it in a lot of churches in our community and a lot of, a lot of churches in our culture overall, um, a consumer-type mentality. Um, self-serving Christianity, I think, is an incredible danger. Yeah, that's hyphenated. Self-serving. Um, <clears throat> so with these kind of things that could be pressing on us, I'm sure we all have... Um, answers to try to battle against them, um, humility. I, I was t we have a group of college students now that are meeting on Thursday morning. God's letting us go through a little book called The Pursuit of Holiness, and a group of them meet here. We're reading two chapters a week, and we meet here before class and, and discuss those chapters. And I was telling them just this week, because <laughs> one of the chapters talked about this, and I told them, I said, it's, it's one of those sermon series that's kind of like bouncing around in my head, but it, it goes along with the apathy thing. Um, I've thought how helpful it might be for me as well, but to do a series on every place in the New Testament that starts with make every effort to 
because there's several of them. Make every effort to, and it, and it seems like there's several of those in the New Testament where God is saying, give your maximum effort to this. And just do a, a series on those verses that talk about make every effort to do something and, and look at what those are. Yeah, because those help avoid these dangers and keep Christ as Lord. So, <clears throat> Well, thank you guys. We still had two more questions we could have answered tonight. We will schedule another Sunday evening and answer those two plus a few more. Uh, and we want to thank you guys for enduring this tonight. Uh, what we're going to do now is take a, a short five or so minute break. Uh, you can use the restroom, get a drink, anything you need to do. Uh, after that five minutes, we're going to ask that all of our non-members uh, go ahead and be...